Let's uh, open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that David has gotten himself into a real fix. Uh, He's been on the run from Saul, and in desperation, he has gone to live among the land of the Philistines. By the time we get to chapter 29, David has been in the country of Philistia for well over a year. And he has gained the trust of King Achish, the, the king, the commander, the, the uh, commander-in-chief, if you will, of the armies of Philistia. As they prepare to go to war against the Israelites, Achish expects David and his men to go with him. This puts David in a very precarious position, doesn't it? If David doesn't go... He's going to be considered a coward, not to mention an ingrate for all the kindness and the protection that King Achish has been giving him for well over a year. But if David does go, then he's going to be looked upon as an enemy of Israel, and there's no way that they're going to accept his rule over them in the event that Saul dies, which we know actually happens uh, in this battle that is to come. In fact, if Saul were to die, which we know that he does, uh, his death would be, uh, the blame for his death would be laid at David's door. And so David is in what we would see as a very difficult quandary, maybe even a lose-lose situation. Uh, As I thought about David's predicament in this chapter, just reading it through and say, man, who have I known just been, had a way of getting in sticky spots? And my mind went back 40 years ago to a boy named Aaron Brown, who was the son of the pastor of the church that my family attended when I was in middle school. Uh, Aaron was the best friend of my youngest brother, who was about the same age, about five or six years old at the time. And Aaron was a good kid. He meant well, but he always found a way of getting into trouble unintentionally. Um, Do you ever hear of a jungle gym? You know what those things are? Um, Yeah. A playground apparatus made up of metal pipes on which kids can sit, climb, or hang. Well, this particular model you see here, known as a dome climber, was the kind that we had on our church playground um, when I was in middle school. And one Sunday after church, we heard yells and crying um, from outside, help me, I'm stuck. And uh, some adults rushed out, and sure enough, there was Aaron uh, perched on top of the jungle gym, and he was in the oddest position. And, And that's why I'm remembering it 40 years later. It just struck me at the time. I remember standing there as he was crying, be like, how did he get in that position? He was sitting perched on on top of this jungle gym, this dome, sitting on one bar with his leg out, but like hyperextended under another bar with the heel of his foot resting on top of the next bar. And anytime we went to move him, he would cry. It hurts like don't, but it's like we had to move him. I mean, and uh, it took quite a few adults trying to help him through this situation and a lot of maneuvering but we were finally able to get him out of it. Up until the time we were able to get there, he was completely helpless. 
totally unable to get himself out of this jam. And like I said, it took a lot of maneuvering. As I thought about Aaron, I thought, you know, sometimes in life, we can be like Aaron on the jungle gym, (laughs) right? We're kind of going on our way, kind of figuring things out as we go, turning this way and that. And finally, we find ourselves in a fix, a fix that we ourselves got, that we got ourselves into. And sometimes we don't even know how we got into this position, but we can't get ourselves out of it. Well, thankfully, when we get ourselves into a fix, God is always faithfully at work. And that, I believe, is, is the main principle that the Lord wants us to understand and embrace as we come to 1 Samuel 29 this morning. When we get ourselves into a fix, God is still faithfully at work. He mercifully comes to our rescue and, and works over and in and under and through the situation to accomplish His good purpose for our lives despite our screw-ups. As we go through 1 Samuel 29 today, I want you to notice how God orchestrates the course of events in this chapter to rescue David out of this seemingly impossible situation. Verse 1 sets the stage for the impending battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. 1 Samuel 29 verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. The location of these respective camps shows that the narrator pushed fast forward, so to speak, on the scene that's playing out before our eyes. He had pushed fast forward on the previous chapter in order to focus on Saul. You might remember that, right? He's focusing on David in chapter 27. Then the scene shifts to Saul on the night before the battle in 1 Samuel 28. Now he's pushing rewinding, going us back to where we were with David. We know that he's going chronologically out of order for this reason. Um, it says here that, they, that the Philistines camped at Aphek, and that is 30 miles north of Gath, which is where they had come from, but it's still 40 miles north, uh, south of Shunem, which is where they were in chapter 28 the night before the battle. So at this point in chapter 29, the Philistines are still moving north to where this battle's going to take place. In the same way, the Israelites, we are told, are encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. A Jezreel was the junction of several different travel routes that converged in that area. And uh, from there, the Israelites' forces would deploy from Jezreel up into the Mount of Gilboa. And that, again, where they are in chapter 28, the previous chapter. So, so again, the narrator fast-forwarded in chapter 28 to the night before the battle, and now he's backing up a bit a few days before the battle, to tell us what's going on with David. They are still headed north. In fact, it's interesting. He refers here uh, with the Israelites saying that they were camped at the spring that is at Jezreel. And that spring is the source of the Harad River and is actually um, uh, part of a public park in Israel today. So if you were to to go to that area of Jezreel, you would see there at the foot of Mount Goboa what is called the fountain. And that is the spring of Jezreel that actually feeds the river Harad. And so it's just kind of interesting that in Israel today, there is still this historic 
landmark. Chapter 29, in fact, begins and ends with Jezreel, which is near the site of Saul's death. And think about this, and we'll see this in chapters 30 and 31. The same Philistines who mortally wound Saul are the same ones who unwittingly rescue David. And this is all part of God's providential dealings with his servant to deliver David out of this crisis. This comes about by the mighty, merciful providence of God. And we see his providence at work throughout this entire chapter. First of all, in the dissension between Achish and his commanders. We've already read verse 1. Now look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Samuel 29. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by, or passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? What are these Hebrews doing here? You can almost see their question just dripping with disdain. The word Hebrew comes from the name Eber, which is listed in Genesis 10.24 as the great-grandson of Noah's oldest son, Shem, from, who was the forefather of the Semites. You've heard of that expression, the Semitic peoples. So Noah's oldest son, Shem, was the forefather of the Semites, which would have included uh, the Canaanites, uh, the Arabs, uh, the Israelites, and other ancient peoples of uh, the Near East. Uh, Shem's great-grandson was Eber, who was a distant ancestor of Abraham, the father of Israel. So that's why the Israelites were sometimes referred to as the Hebrews. But it was usually said by those who didn't like them. They were referred to as the Hebrews, typically in a derogatory sense, by those who were not of Israel. It's sort of like um, how when, you know, we, we call today people that are prejudiced against the Jews anti-Semites, right? Or if they are prejudiced against other peoples of uh, the Middle or Near East. And, and if someone is prejudiced against the Jews, forgive me for, for saying this, but he might call them a kike, Okay, that is a derogatory term. It is a a term of contempt. It's a racial slur used by someone who has contempt for Jewish people. And that's often how the word Hebrew was used back in those days for people who were not descended from Abraham. Who are these Hebrews? Uh, They would say that derogatorily, uh, uh, oozing with contempt. What are these Hebrews doing here? Well, Achish responds with, a question of his own in the second half of verse 3. Achish said to the commander of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? Since he has deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. The term days and years is, is an idiom. That means roughly a year or two. And as Pastor Mike preached on 1 Samuel 27 a couple weeks ago, we know from verse 7 of that chapter that David lived in the country of the Philistines for a year and four months. So throughout the 16 months, which is a pretty long time that David was living among the Philistines under the care and protection of Achish the king, Achish says, I have found no fault in him. In other words, you don't have any good reason 
for doubting that David will help us in this battle. Achish replies to their question, what are these Hebrews doing here, with a question of his own. Is not this David? I found no fault in him for these last 16 months he's been with us. That was his perception. But we know from chapter 27 that David had been deceiving him all along. Do you remember David and his men would, would go out and made, make raids against other towns? Achish thought that when David reported back to him, he used very general terms, giving the impression that he was raiding the towns that were on the outskirts of Judah, uh, towns that belonged to Judah or maybe their allies, but he was actually raiding the towns of people who were their common enemies. And then he killed everybody in the town so there were no survivors to go back to Achish and tell him the truth about what happened. Because Achish was ignorant of these things, in his perception, David was blameless. He had found no fault in him. In fact, 1 Samuel 28 verse 2 says he was prepared to make David his bodyguard for life. Now look at verses 4 and 5. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? As the tensions mount between Achish and his commanders, you can see a little bit of the humor in this back-and-forth conversation, this, this argument, this dispute they're having. Uh, the commanders initiate the quarrel by saying, what are these Hebrews doing here? And, and Achish comes back with a question of his own, saying, is not this David who's been with me for the last year and four months, and I have found no fault in his eyes? And then they respond with yet another question, throwing Achish's words right back to him. Is not this David of whom they sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousand? The, the song that they still sing over a decade later? Think about it, I was thinking, man, it's probably been about 13, 14 years since that song was first released, if you will. And now it's like still a hit, like sung at Jewish high school proms and weddings and, and other celebrations. And I thought, man, how that must have aggravated and angered the Philistines. I was trying to think of equivalent. I was thinking that would probably like members of Al-Qaeda hearing Toby Key's song, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. And if you don't know the song, you're lost. But I was thinking how that would aggravate them if you're being super like patriotic and you know you kind of like have this uh strong attitude regarding your own nation yeah man it, it might appear as a great song but but if you're an enemy if you're on the other side of the conflict that would just grate you like nobody's business and that's the deal with the commanders they're angry with Achish he sees David as an ally but they see him as their adversary and rightly so God is using this dissension between the king of Philistia and the commanders of the Philistine armies to actually get David out of this jam. After this dissension, we therefore see the dialogue. 
that ends up happening between Achish and David. Achish knows he can't go into battle at odds with his commanders. I mean, even Jesus would later say a house divided against itself cannot stand. So Achish is forced, because of this conflict, to have a conversation with David. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So Achish is doing everything he can here to keep peace with David and to preserve the good relationship that they have had. In fact, Achish begins with an unexpected oath, doesn't he? He says, as the Lord lives, invoking the name of Israel's God. Why does he do that? Could it be that Achish has come to believe in the Lord God of Israel? I don't think so, because he's actually going out to battle against the Lord's people. He's their enemies. But I think what Achish is doing here, in trying to keep the peace, he's showing deference to David. He's showing respect for him. Uh, he, he's not going to swear by his gods. He's going to swear by David's God out of respect for David. That seems to be the case, as Achish assures David that he has found nothing wrong in him since the day he arrived. And now he tells David to go back peaceably so he doesn't upset the commanders of the Philistines. And while we're glad for David's sake that Achish regards him this way, the Philistine king really doesn't have a clue, does he? He tells David, you have been honest, when in fact David has not been honest. He tells David, it seems right to me that you should go into the battle. But Achish's opinion regarding that is based upon his faulty perspective. And yet God is providentially using that faulty perspective on the part of Achish to get David out of this pickle. The king's heart is like streams of water, channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Achish tells David, go peaceably. Because he realizes, based on the uh, perception that he has of David, that David might have a real problem with this sudden change of plans. And to keep up the ruse, David puts up a fuss. Look at verse 8. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your servant until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? David is such an actor here. But what have I done? He knows what he's done, but he says, what have you found in your servant? David knows he hasn't found anything in him because he killed anyone that could have told him. And then he says, what have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Is David not the king of ambiguity? Remember we saw that in the previous chapter? And now he does it again. I, I, I went back 
In David's most recent encounters with Saul, chapters 24 and chapter 26, the last two encounters they have where David spares Saul's life. And even when Saul is at his very worst, hunting David down like a partridge. Remember David talked about that? Why are you searching me out? And David spares Saul's life on two occasions, not once, but twice. And in these last two encounters with Saul, where Saul is hounding David, he's at his very worst, hunting him down, on multiple occasions throughout these last two encounters, David repeatedly refers to Saul as my Lord, the King. So when David says here, why shouldn't I go out and fight the enemies of my Lord, the King, who's he referring to? Achish understands and understandably so, that that David's referring to him. But could it be that David is actually referring to Saul, whom he has called, even in Saul's worst moments, my Lord, the King? Achish falls for everything David says, hook, line, and sinker. Look at verses 9 and 10. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Notice again, in my sight. I know, but my perspective must be perfect. I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Though Achish would love for David to accompany him, he simply cannot allow it, given how his other commanders feel about it. So his mind is made up. And when he says, now, now then rise early tomorrow morning, now indicates urgency. David must leave at first light. Commentator Bill Arnold sums up the situation perfectly, saying, quote, Achish thinks he is disappointing David by driving him away. In reality, he has become God's instrument for delivering David from an impossible lose-lose situation. End quote. David's exit here is more than a departure. It's a divine deliverance. Verse 11. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Problem solved. Thanks to God. It's amazing to see how the Lord worked through this situation, rescuing David from a fix into which he had gotten himself. As I read through this account, I was amazed to see how God used this conflict between the commanders on the same side, Achish and the Lord of the Philistines, to get David, their enemy, out of this situation. I played out the various scenarios in my mind and scribbled down this diagram on my tablet. If there had been pure animosity, it would have resulted in David's death. Because they would have seen, all of them would have seen David as their adversary. But if there was pure approval, the king and the commanders wanted David to go out with them. None of them saw when he fallen in him then that would have left David in this dilemma. Uh, a, a situation in which he finds a two equally unpleasant choices, whether to go and fight against his own countrymen 
or to be in a desperate fix with the Philistines. But because there were mixed feelings, because there was friction between Achish and his commanders regarding David, it resulted in his deliverance. Dale Davis correctly states, 1 Samuel 29 is not the story of a lucky break, but a divine deliverance, a merciful deliverance. I wonder how many times have we faced a situation in life and things turned out far better than we have hoped and we said that we got a lucky break. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as luck. There is only providential blessings in our lives. God's presence permeates this entire chapter. But interestingly, the name of God only appears twice. And both times it is used not by David, but by Achish. Perhaps implying that while David was in Philistine territory, he did not consult the Lord. As Pastor Mike noted when preaching on chapter 27 a couple of weeks ago, there are no psalms recorded during David's stay in Philistia. So David's withdrawal here was not owing to how great David was, it was owing to how good and merciful God was to David. David had gotten himself into this fix. God is the one who got him out of it. I find it interesting not only that Achish is the only one who mentions God in this chapter twice, but that Achish also defends David's honor three times in this chapter, saying, I find no fault in him. I find no wrong in you. You are blameless. And as we look at Achish's threefold defense of David, does it remind you of Pilate's threefold defense of Jesus, where he said three times in the Gospel of John, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. Achish's perspective of David was wrong, but Pilate's perception of Jesus was absolutely correct. And yet what does Scripture say? He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone, yet he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross, He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Peter declared that Jesus was delivered up according to the prearranged plan of God so that we could be delivered from sin and death, God's righteous wrath against our sin. Friends, apart from Christ, we are hopeless. We are in a lose-lose situation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, completely unable to rescue ourselves. And in that state, if we perish in that state, Scripture says that we are doomed to suffer in hell forever apart from the glorious presence of God. It is the worst predicament that anybody can be in. And according to Scripture, it is the predicament in which we all find ourselves from birth. And yet God, through Jesus, mercifully provided the way of escape. By working through His enemies, 
to provide a way of rescue for us. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So think of it. We are all spiritually in the absolute worst predicament that anybody could be in. Far worse than than the predicament David was in physically, even in this situation. And it's the predicament of every person naturally, but God provided a way of escape, and now God says, you choose. I have sent you my son. I have delivered up my son to the cross in order to deliver you from your sins and the penalty that you rightfully deserve because you got yourself into this fix. But in my grace, in my mercy, out of my great love for you, it is my joy to deliver you. Instead of death, you can have life. Instead of hell, you can have heaven. Instead of your sins, you can have me. But you must choose. There is no other way. Whoever doesn't say whoever as long as you didn't do this or that. It says whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life. You have God's promise on that. But whoever does not obey the Son, meaning that we, we, we don't really believe in Him and we show up by how we live our lives, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, you're still in that pickle. You're still in that horrific predicament from which there is no escape except through Christ. And if you die without embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will perish in hell forever. Not because God wasn't willing to get you out of that fix, but because you chose to refuse the way of escape that God provided. So if you have not yet embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have not yet accepted this free gift of salvation, of rescue from God, why would you put it off? Why wouldn't you accept that gift today simply acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve your punishment, but I believe you sent your son to rescue me and I put my faith wholly in him for my forgiveness, for my salvation. Scripture assures us no one who trusts God like this, heart and soul, will ever regret it. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great? This promise is for every person, including you. And if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, you should be greatly encouraged by today's text. That is to say, if God rescued you when you were his enemy because of your countless transgressions against him, how much more is God wanting to rescue you out of lesser predicaments that we face in life now that you're his child? God's mercy is tenacious. Dale Davis reminds us, quote, Yahweh is not short-tempered with his people. 
His mercy and patience are not exhausted when we choose our foolish philistias. Our bungling does not evaporate his mercy. End quote. When we get ourselves into a fix, as we often do, God is still faithfully at work. In his most famous psalm, what's David's most famous psalm? Psalm 23. In his most famous psalm, David testified at the close of it, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Hebrew word for follow is probably a weak translation. It can also be translated pursue or to chase. Get that image in your mind. David is saying, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And then I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, Saul pursued David, but you know what? So did God's mercy and his goodness. God's mercy is tenacious. As we are reminded in the song we sang before the sermon, God's presence goes with us wherever we go. As you ponder the road that you have traveled, as you think through all the different twists and turns of your life, the muck that you have gotten yourself into at times, can you not see glimpses of God's quiet presence all along the way? Even those times when you didn't pray to Him, when you weren't in His Word, when your heart wasn't fully committed to Him, God was still fully committed to you. His mercy, His goodness is tenacious. They pursue you every day of your life. Could I give you a homework assignment? In this moment, and maybe later on today, throughout this week, why not itemize those moments of mercy when the Lord was there to help you, to sustain you, to strengthen you when you were in a real fix? And whether it was last week, 10 years, or decades ago, Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being with me. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on me. Thank you, Lord, for pursuing me. You have always been there to help me, to strengthen me, to sustain me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. An old hymn reminds us, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that by your Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, you never leave us nor forsake us. Your mercy pursues us every day of our life. Your quiet presence is known and operative even in those moments where we're not tuned into you. We thank you, Lord God, for not giving up on us, for not giving us over to our sin, but for working at times quietly behind the scenes 
strengthening us, giving us hope, orchestrating circumstances to get us out of a bind. Lord, even when you have us go through a trial and don't take us out of it, you give us strength to endure it so that we come out better on the other side. As we look at the plight of David in this chapter, we are reminded that there is no trial, there is no temptation that is that we have experienced, but such as is common to man, to the human race. And God, you are faithful and you will, with the trial or temptation, provide a way of escape that we might be able to endure it. Help us, Lord, to itemize your missions of mercy in our lives, to give you thanks and to fix our eyes on you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.